Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Wendy Friedman, who is Professor of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Chicago. Her current projects involve measurements of the Hubble constant, the current expansion rate, as well as the past expansion rate, providing constraints on the acceleration of the universe and dark energy. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So we, we talked uh, a few months ago, and as I mentioned, I was hoping for some data uh, that will show all of our understanding that the Lambda CDM is completely incorrect. So we have to start over again, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, so you have a paper, a recent paper, answering the most important problem in cosmology today. Is the tension in the Hubble constant real? Uh, you say measurements of the Hubble constant are on the cusp of uh, heralding in a fundamental discovery in cosmology that goes beyond the standard Lambda CDM model, yet published differences in the local distance scale may be indicating that systematic errors, which have long been the bane of the extragalactic distance scale, are larger than currently estimated. So before we go into the details of this, Wendy, um, I obviously don't have a background in astrophysics, so I'm <laughs> trying to understand this. So um, the, the Hubble constant, um, a, a discovery of Edwin Hubble in the early 20s. Uh, it's really the, if I understand this correctly, Wendy, if you, if you plot distance on the x-axis, distance of stars and galaxies from us, and its velocity on the y-axis, so kilometers per second velocity on the y-axis, distance in uh, megaparseconds or, um, or, or millions of light years on the, on the x-axis, you see this relationship between, th between things uh, that appear to be moving faster when they're away from us, right? And so I have two concept questions. I obviously don't understand this. The first question is, is there a physical reason why this relationship is linear? Couldn't that be exponential or logarithmic or something? 
Yeah, uh, the fact that it is linear is a manifestation. The fact that the expansion is uniform um, and uh, fits in with what is uh, expected from general relativity. If you have a uniform expansion in the universe, then you would see at least nearby this uniform expansion. Of course, the linear relationship only holds nearby because as you go more distant than other effects, uh, the density of matter and the uh, density of a cosmological constant, the dark energy density, uh, come into play and uh, general relativistic effects. So, it, it, but it is a consequence of the fact that, th that we're seeing a uniform expansion. So, if, if we are sitting in our Milky Way galaxy and we're measuring velocities and distances of galaxies nearby, we see this proportionality. The farther away a galaxy is, the faster it's moving away from us. But if we were to go to another galaxy and measure around that galaxy, we would see exactly the same thing. Yeah, that's disappointing. Uh, this almost would have proved that we are at the center of the universe. Uh, but but that is, that's not the case. <laughs> no, we would see the same thing at any point in the universe. Locally, we would, we would measure the same effect. Right. So, um, so the idea that uh, things away from us, more away from us, are moving faster, is that in itself proof that the universe is expanding? Um, the reason I'm asking is, you know, suppose the universe is closed rather than flat, um, would we see some effects that are, you know, um, that, that that might not really um, prove that things are expanding? Well, the. It, the fact that the universe is expanding is, is one piece of evidence for the expansion. Of course, the uh, you could have had a steady state universe, which was proposed many decades ago, um, and you'd have a continual uh, uh, formation of, of new matter as the universe is expanding. But the fact that we do see the remnant radiation from a Big Bang explosion is the other piece of evidence, uh, in addition to the abundances of light elements that also provide evidence for the, the Big Bang theory of the universe. But, but the uh, galaxies themselves are not actually moving through space. We're seeing the expansion of space. That's what relativity, general relativity, tells us. It's it's the uh, the the stretching essentially, uh, and and the galaxies are moving uh, appear to be moving away with the expansion of space. Yeah, so the stretching of space time. So we could actually see if if you really sort of measure relative velocities, we could see these things moving faster than light, right? That's correct. So special relativity tells us that nothing, no information can travel faster than the speed of light. So light doesn't, so we can't get information from anything. Uh, but the, there's no speed limit to the universe. That, so there are parts of the universe that would appear to be uh, moving faster than the speed of light. And so if our current understanding is correct, uh, it will continue to expand, expand at a faster, faster rate, right? It will, we will see things sort of moving away from us. Um, do we have a horizon, um, sort of a time horizon at which we won't be able to see anything anymore? <laughs> when will that happen? Yeah, so you're, you're talking about two, two effects, right? So the, the fact that the universe is expanding, we can see more and more of the universe as time goes on because there's time for light from more distant objects to reach us. 
But the fact that, uh, so Edwin Hubble, of course, discovered that the universe was expanding in 1929, but it wasn't until a couple of decades ago that the the um, discovery was made that not only is the universe expanding, but it's actually accelerating in its expansion. So there were things that will recede out of our horizon and given long enough time, and we're talking 60 billion years or so, but uh, you know we won't see anything except for the nearest galaxies that are gravitationally bound to us in the local group, say. But uh, the night sky will be very different uh, in 60 billion years. <laughs> because things will have receded away from, from us, yeah. In a few billion years, so if humanity were to be restarted at that point, um, <laughs> theories would be quite different, I would imagine. Yes, they will. Because you can't take any measurements of anything, right? Yeah, well, the stars in the Milky Way will be bound to us. Um, I mean, wait long enough, dark energy will. Um, but, you know, we would see the night sky still filled with stars. But our understanding of the, the greater universe and, and galaxies within it um, will be very different. So the Hubble constant, H0, um, there has been, I mean, you, you spent many, many uh, decades around uh, measuring the Hubble constant um, so what was sort of our first at, attempt at doing this? So uh, I know that there are you know, multiple methodologies uh, that, that have been tried. Was it the, the, the CMB was sort of the first one or the Cepheid uh, variables was, was the first attempt? Well, the Cepheid occurs go way, way back. Uh, in fact, Edwin Hubble used Cepheid variables when he first discovered the expansion. Uh, he only had a handful of galaxies that he could measure Cepheids in. The telescopes uh, at that point, uh, he, he couldn't see much farther, so he used bright stars and what came to be known as H2 regions to, to make his famous diagram. Um, and so Cepheids have been used now for almost 100 years. The CMB measurements, are, of course, are much newer than that. But what had happened was that based on the Cepheid measurements, Hubble first measured a value of the Hubble constant of 500 kilometers per second per megaparsec in the diagram you were describing. It's the slope of that correlation between velocity and distance. And that value had settled down to about uh, in a range of 50 to 100. And, and so there was a factor of two uncertainty that people were arguing about for decades. And then in, when the Hubble Space Telescope was launched, uh, I led a, 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 what was called the Hubble Key Project to, to use Cepheids measured with the Hubble Space Telescope, get us above the Earth's atmosphere, which allowed us also with the availability then of CCD detectors, digital detectors, instead of the photographic plates available to Hubble, to measure the Hubble constant much more accurately. So we use Cepheid variables to calibrate five different methods, including these type 1a supernovae that we use today uh, to, to measure the Hubble constant. And we got a value of, of 73 at that time. And it's remained pretty steady. Um, the Cepheid calibration comes out high. And then the microwave background measurements got better and better in the last couple of decades. And they are so precise in the way that you can measure fluctuations in the temperature and now also the polarization of light from uh, remnant radiation from the Big Bang. And if you assume uh, 
a model, uh, what we call our standard model now, which provides a, an exquisite fit to the fluctuations in those temperature and polarization measurements, then you can infer the Hubble constant today. And when you do that, you get a value of 67. So there's this uh, discrepancy between the Cepheids and the uh, coming from the, the cosmic microwave background observations, which if it's real, it would imply that there's some fundamental physics that's missing from our standard model. And so the, the question now is, is this a real discrepancy or could there be systematic uncertainties that we haven't yet identified that could uh, explain the difference? And so our group used these uh, red giant branch stars, a method using the tip of the red giant branch, as we call it, to independently calibrate the, the supernovae, not using Cepheids at all. And we initially expected that either we would agree with the Cepheids or we would agree with the microwave background, and we found ourselves right in the middle. Um, and in fact, there's no discrepancy, uh, statistically speaking, with the microwave background observations. However, it's also in, in relatively good agreement with the Cepheids. So um, where I've become really excited is that we're about to have the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope in a couple of months now. And that will allow us, we've just been given time on, on James Webb to measure distances using not just Cepheids or not just the Red Giant Branch, but in the same galaxies, use both those techniques and a third one that we've been developing using a type of star, a carbon star, that will allow us to really get at these questions of systematics. Um, James Webb is bigger, it has more sensitivity, it has better resolution, and, and we can measure for the first time uh, one of the systematic uncertainties in the Cepheid distance scale has to do with the abundance of the Cepheids themselves. That is, younger Cepheids have been around longer, they're made out of more processed materials, so the amount of metals in their atmospheres is higher and affects the luminosity of the star. And that's been one of the big unknowns in the Cepheid distance scale. It's worried us since before the key project, and it, it, the, the cosmic microwave background observations now their uh, value of the Hubble constant is measured to a precision of less than 1%, better than 1%, which is extraordinary. And we haven't done that yet with our local measurements because of these kinds of systematic uncertainties. So James Webb is going to let us really get at some of these remaining uh, difficulties. And, and it remains a really exciting possibility that there's new physics, but we better be sure that we've gotten on top of the systematics. And so that, that's why I'm really excited about what's coming up. It's um, a whole new world opened up by James Webb. Yeah, I want to talk about James Webb in detail, but before we get there, I want to just uh, sort of go back. So the Cepheid um, measurements, um, as you say, a Hubble, uh, Hubble had a 5,000 number. Uh, and, and then we went from, you know, sort of 50 to 100. Uh, as an engineer, I would have uh, just averaged them and say that the answer was 75. Uh, and then we made better and better measurements. The, the variance um, um, changed and became less and less. But we sort of staying there, right? The, as the expectation still from a severe uh, measurements, it's still about 74 or so. Yeah, 73, 74, that's right. And then uh, CMB, as you say, we have very precise measurements, but that is coming at 67. 
Uh, and then what you have been working on for past several years, the, the red giant, the tip of the red giant branch measurement. So these are things that um, I guess it is le it's less noisy measurements compared to CIFID. Is that the way to think about them? Yeah, I think that's the way to look at them. So th these are evolved stars, low mass stars, and the, the Cepheids are young stars. And so we have no choice but to observe the Cepheids in the disks of spiral galaxies, where and they're very close by to the regions where they formed out of gas and dust. And, and so, and, and the bright background of the galaxy itself, they're residing in it. So to measure the, you know, accurately the photometry, the, the luminosity of an individual Cepheid against the background, sometimes there are nearby stars that are resolved and crowding it, and sometimes you can't tell what's under the star. It makes it much harder to get accurate photometry when you have to work in the crowded region of a disk. The tip of the red giant branch stars, they're older stars, and we find them in the halos of galaxies. So they're well away from the disk, well away from the gas and dust that cause these systematic effects like reddening and, and making the stars fainter. And we can tell directly what their abundance is from their luminosity and their color or their temperature. We have no direct way of doing that for the Cepheids. And, and we can also measure these tip of the red giant branch stars in elliptical galaxies as well as spiral galaxies. And our distant samples have both. And there may be systematic effects there differences between the two types of galaxies. So for a lot of reasons, the, the tip of the red giant branch method is just much simpler and less prone, I think, to systematic effects. The Cepheids are, are, are complicated. Their, their, their histories, their metal abundances, the crowding in the disk. And so in, in both of these techniques, the idea is that we can observe luminosity and given some sort of a heuristic that we can determine from other methods, we can then use that to say how far the, that, that particular object is, right? Is that the way to think about it? Um, so, you're, so, uh, so, you're, so you measure the apparent brightness of the object, and then you have a calibration that is set uh, and the best way to do that is using a geometric technique for a nearby object like a Cepheid. So you could measure its parallax. So it's most simplest. You can think of it as, as the um, uh, Earth is going about the sun. You measure the position of the, your star at one part in the orbit and then you say six months later and you can measure that angle. Of course, you measure the entire orbit. But um, and, and you can do that it's high school geometry, right? Very simple, straightforward to do. And once you have that calibration, then when you measure the, um, the luminosity of, say, your Cepheid or your tip of the red giant branch star in another galaxy, you just use the inverse square law of light and you can determine the distance to your object. But you need that calibration. So, for example, it would be great if we could use type 1a supernovae without having to worry about Cepheids or tip of the red giant branch at all. But we only know the relative brightnesses of type 1a supernovae. We, we have to get an absolute calibration of the distance, and the supernovae are just too rare uh, to, to do that. And we have no way of measuring a parallax for a, a nearby 
supernova. So, um, so, so we have to rely on what we refer to as a distance ladder, which has become much simpler since Hubble's time. But nonetheless, we still need to step out into the universe using nearby stars where we have geometric distances, then the realm of the Hubble Space Telescope where we can measure Cepheids or tip of the red giant branch stars to compare with the geometric calibrations and then step out to type 1a supernovae and uh, then we can get out into the distant what we refer to as the Hubble flow uh, and the reason we have to go distant is because again galaxies are located in groups of galaxies they they tend to interact gravitationally and so that it adds a noise a peculiar velocity above and below the Hubble expansion velocity so as you go farther and farther out, this this effect of the peculiar motion is much smaller relative to the Hubble expansion. So it's really a three-step process. And, and so we work very hard to try and make sure that the calibrations are consistent and that we're comparing apples with apples as we step out into the into the distant flow. But but I think that again is we need to be very uh, careful that at each step we are eliminating the systematic errors that could plague us and that historically as, as you quoted before have been the bane of the extragalactic distance scale yeah so the, the basic assumption remains to be these are standard candles and so we have to assume that the physics underlying them whether it's a cepheid variable of a tip of the red giant star the physics underlying them is standard uh, and they all do exactly the same, right? Uh, do we have sufficient evidence that's the case? So I'll distinguish between the tip of the red giant branch and Cepheids again. I mean, the, 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 the first thing I would say is that, for example, with the period luminosity relation that we use for Cepheids, what we refer to as the, the Levitt law, uh, so the brighter the Cepheid is, uh, the slower it's uh, changing in its brightness, the longer its period. And um, to the extent that we've measured, for example, in the key project uh, sample, there were a couple of dozen galaxies and we can measure the slope of the period luminosity relation and that to within the uncertainties that we can measure it appears to be, it, it's not changing. And we're talking about local physics. We're talking about, uh, you know, stars with a particular kind of density, the pulsations are due to the the position of um, their atmosphere, the ionization state of the atmosphere. And, and that that's local physics. You wouldn't expect that that's going to somehow vary by huge amounts when you go to a different location. Um, where you could have differences, as I mentioned, the, the abundance of the atmosphere, the metals in the atmosphere could make the luminosities change. Uh, from metal poor to metal rich galaxies, but that's something you hope to be able to calibrate despite the challenges in doing that. Um, so there's no evidence to within at least the the error bars that exist at present that there's some wildly varying difference between the, the Cepheids uh, from one location to another. And, and similarly with the red giant branch stars, these are stars that have degenerate helium cores they have a hydrogen burning shell about that degenerate core and more matter is being dumped onto the to the helium core and the luminosity is increasing as it's burning the hydrogen until the star reaches a, a temperature of about 100 million degrees 
And then uh, there's essentially a thermal runaway. It, it, the star can burn the helium in a non-degenerative way, breaks the degeneracy because the temperature keeps rising. And it gives rise to something known as the helium flash, which is has been very well studied for many, many decades. And it essentially just depends on the nuclear physics. So again, this is a local physics uh, kind of issue. It's not that we would expect that degenerate helium cores would behave differently in different parts of the universe. But that's another advantage of the tip of the red giant branch method is that we're not having to worry about pulsating atmospheres and um, and and the fact that uh, the metallicity of a star, you know, a younger star will have a higher metallicity. So within a single galaxy, you could have spread in, in, in the period luminosity relation just as a consequence of evolution. Um, all, all the stars at the tip of the red giant branch have the same luminosity set by the physics of the nuclear physics of the core. So um, I, I think you know as we refine our measurements, of course, we could find differences that uh, could become significant. But but we do test for those things, and and those uh, they're not simply an assumption. We we are actually measuring and comparing different galaxies, and we and to within the uncertainties, they agree. Yeah, so so people of the red giant stars, it appears that there is less uncertainty, less sort of things affecting the measurements. Um, I, I was wondering, Wendy, um, uh, I know that this is probably not the case. So the, the tension has been between C and B that is that seems to fit everything that we know. And that's showing 67 local measurements show something above or close to 70. Is there some sort of a bias selection problem? I, I know that we, you know, we, we are not really, we are just looking at about two dozen samples, right? Um, could we just unfortunately picked up uh, two dozen uh, observations that sort of give us the wrong data? I think, I think statistically, it's unlikely that it would be a 10% effect. You could imagine that at the couple percent effect, you're unlucky and you, you know, somehow the mean of your, your sample is biased in some way, but it can't explain the whole difference. I mean, the difference between 67 and 74 is 9%, and and that just is statistically incredibly unlikely. So I, I, I don't think that will be the answer, but you could also imagine there could be several effects that, again, at the 1% level or 2% level, you know, if we discover that, I mean, I think the other thing to be said is some of these effects are covariant. Right. So if you're trying to measure Cepheids um, and correct for the presence of dust, you need two filters to do that, at least two. It's preferable you have more than that to correct for the reddening because it changes the color of the star. Uh, you also need to correct for this metal abundance effect, which is also a function of uh, it affects the color of the star. And um, and then you have to worry about the fact that you're in these crowded regions in the spiral galaxies and the crowding goes up towards the center. There are more stars in the center. The, the density of stars is higher. The metal abundance is higher and the reddening is higher. So all of those effects go in the same direction. So, so you, when you're trying to correct for those effects, if you make an error, say, because you got the wrong luminosity of your star because of crowding, then you get the reddening wrong, then you get the metallicity wrong. So so there's there's covariance there that I think we don't yet, we certainly don't understand at the 1% effect uh, a level. 
uh, and and I think that that again is why James Webb is going to be so important because the resolution of the telescope is you know almost four times what we can get with the infrared camera on Hubble, and um, and so we'll see directly are these stars being crowded. Uh, we'll have better sensitivity, so higher signal to noise in in the measurements. Be able to measure the metallicities directly for the first time, and 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 answer some of these questions. Uh, you know, what what is the level of the systematic uncertainty? And at the end, you know, I still am, uh, part of me hopeful we're going to learn something about new physics because that would be really interesting. But but I don't know what the answer will be yet until we make the measurements. So, so are you encouraged by the fact that your measurements in the in the tip of the red giant branch is coming closer to the CMB expectation? Are, are the are the error bars uh, sort of overlapping now or close to it? Yeah, the the error bars of the tip of the red giant branch method and CMB are overlapping, and I think you know had we not gone and measured the Cepheids as part of the key project, and you know the later measurements of Cepheids are giving the higher values of uh, 73 or 74, we would be saying this is consistent with the uh, lambda CVM, the cosmological constant cold dark matter standard model, and uh, wondering you know. What are the systematics and the Cepheid distance scale? How is metallicity hurting you, and and so on? But I, I think, um, and and it's the first serious test of the Cepheid distance scale. That was the reason that we set out to do this: is knowing that there are systematic uncertainties in any measurements. You you won't improve the accuracy of your measurement by doing it in the same way over and over and over, right? If we're still do, using the Cepheids and we have these issues with, say, metallicity or crowding, we could make the measurement hundreds of times, but we're still going to have the systematic uncertainty. And so the, we designed the tip of the red giant branch uh, Hubble program specifically to measure the Hubble constant independent of the Cepheids. The tip of the red giant branch has its own set of systematics, which are smaller, as you uh, have seen, um, and give us some sense of what is the overall systematic uncertainty. And th this first test says, well, wait a minute, there's not apparently a four to sig six sigma effect with the tip of the red giant branch, as has been claimed for the Cepheids. And, and so uh, even in the nearest galaxies, we are seeing differences. And that says there's some systematic effect, right? That's not new fundamental physics of the early universe. That's these galaxies are at a single distance. They, they can only have one distance. And if the Cepheids and tip of the red giant branch are giving different answers, there's some systematic uncertainty in one or both. And we better understand that before we claim that there's uh, that there's new fundamental physics that's required. It's the other it, possibility, of course, is H naught is not a constant. <laughs> uh, it's changing with time. Um, well, it is changing with time, right? I mean, that's okay. we see that with dark energy, right? As a as a function of redshift or time, the the expansion rate of the universe does change. That that's certainly the case. But locally, yeah, yeah. Uh, spatially, here in our local neighborhood, which is what we're measuring with the uh, the expansion rate today, right? H naught means time at t equals zero. Um, that that's what we're measuring, and the cosmic microwave background measurements um, that require so these are measurements being made at the surface of last scattering, 
and uh, you know redshift of 1100, and and then it's the model, the cool dark matter lambda model that allows you to then infer what the expansion rate is today. But it certainly has been changing with time. We know that. Okay, so the H naught we are measuring from CMB is actually H naught at time equal to zero. It's not H naught 380,000 years uh, after the Big Bang. Right. You, you have to uh, have a model, right? So if you assume that lambda CDM is correct, then you can infer the expansion rate today. Uh, and and so when you do that, and so, you know, as I said, the fits to the fluctuations that are being measured in temperature and polarization, if you use a six parameter fit for a lambda CDM model, it's an exquisite fit to those data. You don't need any additional physics. And so what's happened is, so, and, and when you have that fit, then you can say, okay, what would the expansion then rate be today based on the Lambda CDM model? And you get 67. So, uh, if it's, uh, if the local measurements are correct, that would say something's missing from the Lambda CDM model. That's where that uh, impetus is coming from. So, we better be right in the local universe to claim that there's this extraordinary uh, new physics. And and it's uh, there have been many measurements now, so not just, say, Planck or WMAP, uh, but also measurements from Chile and the South Pole, the ACT um, measurements and South Pole SPT measurements that are uh, agreeing with the measurements from Planck, and also measurements of the matter density uh, so-called baryon acoustic oscillations give a value of about 67. And so, um, and, and it's not completely independent, the BAO measurements from the CMB measurements, because you need to um, to calibrate the, the baryon acoustic standard ruler, as it were, and that's, you assume, uh, basic um, neutrino physics um, and calibration coming from from the microwave background. And and so um, at this point, I would say um, it, it, it's an intriguing result. It is a possibility. It, you know, if you think of it, we don't yet understand what the dark matter is. There's been no direct detection of dark matter, and yet uh, most of the matter in the universe is dark, and about one third of the composition of the universe is matter. About two thirds is in this form of dark energy, this lambda uh, proposed by uh, Albert Einstein, cosmological constant, uh, appears to be consistent with uh, the, the standard model incorporates that. But we have no idea what the fundamental physics is that describes this dark energy. It, we, we have no theory right now that can explain it. So when you have a theory where you don't understand it, it's most at most basic level yet what the major constituents of the universe are, it is an absolutely reasonable hypothesis that there are missing things from that model. How would you test that? Well, you would measure the Hubble constant locally and you would compare it with what you would infer from a Lambda CDM model. And uh, if there were no missing physics, those two should agree. And right now they don't. And the question is, is that a significant difference and statistically, if it were only uh, statistical uncertainties, which is part of what you were getting at before, um, it might be okay. But but the question is, are there systematic uncertainties that could be 
plaguing the distances. And these are hard measurements to make, as we've been discussing. These are not, we, you know, we don't have a ruler we can go in a lab and measure a, a, a dimension with high, high precision and accuracy. We're using objects, stars that uh, are complicated in many ways and that uh, could have real physical types of systematics. It's not that the me there are measurement errors, it's that there's something about the astrophysics that's yeah, missing yeah. from our understanding of, of the stars that we're using. Yeah, and we need more samples. So that, that is where James Webb comes in, right? So, I mean, this is a project, I was looking at the history of James Webb. <laughs> it's a project that has been going on for how many years? 20, 25 years? 25, 26, yeah. <laughs> that's an amazing thing. Um, and clearly it's a very complex uh, project. Um, so, so this is going to have sort of an exposed um, mirror, um, sort of how, how, how big is it? 6.5 meters, so that's the latest or eight meters? Five meters, yeah. And it's it's made up of 18 different segments. So it's that, that have to be unfurled in space. Um, so yeah, it is a, an incredible engineering uh, project. It's, it's and, and what is the what's the spectrum that it's really focused on? It, it's a, a telescope that will focus in the infrared, and so from near infrared to far infrared, um, and there will be a, a little bit of optical that can be done, but the sensitivity in the optical is much lower. So it's optimized. Uh, the diffraction limit I think is two point two microns. And, and so was it 6.5, uh, the, the, the diameter of the lens? Yeah. And, and so it's a single 6.5 meter lens. No, 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 it's 18 <laughs> segments. That 18 different segments. So it's so really difficult to launch that thing, right? So it, the, when the James Webb was first being discussed, so uh, this, this was, uh, I, I was involved in fact, in some of the early discussions of JWST there was a committee that was charged with coming up with the successor to Hubble. And our committee uh, recommended, in fact, a four meter telescope because, well, for two reasons. One, the budget of a larger telescope we didn't think would be feasible, which <laughs> did turn out to be a very expensive undertaking. And the other was that there was no launch vehicle that had a fairing that was large enough to have something that was a six and a half meter mirror. And so, um, when our committee came out with a report, the the um, director uh, at that time uh, at NASA science uh, director, Dan Golden, had said, um, you're thinking too small. I mean, this is just, you, you guys need to think bigger, was how he put it. And so uh, the, the telescope became bigger. There were proposals to to build a bigger telescope, and uh, and the way to solve the problem of being able to launch something with a, a mirror that large was to do it in segments. And there are 18 segments to the mirror. So it sort of falls in, and then when when it's up in the in space, it, it's sort of like an umbrella. It opens up. Is that the idea? That's right. It unfolds like petals in a flower, and it. Yeah, I encourage people to go look this up. If it, 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 and you will appreciate just how, how daring and and exciting this project is. Because there are also these giant sun shields that protect the telescope and the instrument from the direct radiation from the sun. Those have to unfurl. There, there are a lot of moving parts to this telescope, 
and it will go into um, what we call an L2 orbit. So it's actually a solar orbit. It's not going to be orbiting the Earth the way that Hubble does. So it's not a serviceable uh, facility in the way that we could take up new instruments on Hubble and then repair it when there was the problem with the focus. This thing will be uh, 1.5 million kilometers away from the Earth at uh, Earth trailing solar orbit. Um, and, and, and all this unfurling has to happen um, uh, we, you know, remotely. This is going to be the most stressful launch uh, for a lot of people. Um, I, I'm sure that's a fair <laughs> characterization. <laughs> I understand that we set out with a budget of five billion. By the time we actually get it out there, it'll be about ten billion. And as you say, unlike the Hubble, we can we can send somebody out there to, to fix it up if something goes wrong. And so it's sort of a binary outcome, isn't it? It is. It is. And and of course, we can never say never. But it, it <laughs> there's no way at the moment of getting out there uh, to fix something at L2. <laughs> and uh, so we, we just hope that uh, it will work. And, and, and I think it, you know, that this is not new technology. Um, there, there's reason to be very, very optimistic that it will work, but it, it is binary, as you say, it has to work. And so, yeah, I, I do remember when um, First, when Hubble was launched, and then we we learned about the spherical aberration and the fact that telescope couldn't focus well, and then watching the refurbishment mission and the astronauts you know, taking out these giant piano-sized instruments and replacing them, we were just glued to NASA television, <laughs> waiting. We couldn't do the key project that we had been awarded time to do. We, uh, there were a couple nearby galaxies that we got some early data on, but but we wouldn't have been able to do the project if it hadn't been for the fact that the telescope could be refurbished in space. So, so what's the technical reason for the L2 position? Why, why, um, why a solar orbit and why L2? It's a nearly stable orbit. Um, it's not quite stable. There has to be some station keeping, but it's, it's pretty close. And uh, so a lot of telescopes now, the microwave background telescopes, um, it's, a, it's become a popular place to, to park telescopes. Um, so you don't have to worry about, you know, the, the, um, the, the sun as much. We, we have to worry with Hubble. You can't observe all the time with Hubble uh, in an Earth orbit. It's, it's much more efficient in terms of telescope observing time to get out away from Earth orbit, low Earth orbit. That's because the sun is not moving, right? Is that one of the fundamental reasons? Yeah. So is L2 sort of a, a, a band around the sun, or is it a, a sort of a singular position? It's sort of like a little, uh, you know, a little circle essentially around. It's, it's, it's almost stable, as I said, but not quite. I mean, it's being perturbed. And, and you have to do a little bit of, of uh, updating the position, but it's it's um, but not a lot is required. So the life nominally is about five years, and the hope is that that it will last for ten years. But we could put multiple multiple things in L two, right? Yeah. Not just a single thing. No, no, it's not a point. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure, you know, as face jump fills up everything, I'm pretty sure L2 is going to get filled up at some point. <laughs> uh, and so, so James Webb has a, a, a specific lifespan, right? Uh, it has to use fuel, and uh, at some point, um, there is no, uh, at some point, it's going to die, I would think, right? Right. That's right. And and if I recall correctly, or at least I think it used to be and, and likely still is that it's uh, you know, the goal is five years, but the hope is that it could last for 10. And with Hubble, we've just been un, un, you know, incredibly lucky at how long. And of course, with the refurbishment, that's made it possible because um, several of the gyros have gone and, um, you know, and, and Hubble could be actually uh with the opportunity to put new instruments state-of-the-art instruments it's just gotten better and better with time but that's not not a possibility for for james webb i know that you're going to use this extensively so this so is going back to this observations uh especially the, the tip of the red giant uh, star observations uh, how did james webb uh what what additional accuracy or information do you expect to get from james webb yeah, well, the, these tip of the red giant branch stars actually uh, emit more radiation in the infrared. They get brighter uh, in the in the optical. They get fainter with wavelength, but they actually um, emit a lot of their radiation in, in the near infrared. So because they're brighter, we can observe them to greater distances. So the volume of space that we can measure and the distances to galaxies increases. And so we can increase our sample size, uh, decrease the statistical uncertainties, and that will help us a lot. Um, and uh, it, unfortunately for the Cepheids, because Cepheids are relatively blue stars, what in terms of uh, uh, discovering Cepheids, it's best to do that where the amplitudes of the stars are largest, right? They're varying in their brightness, but in the infrared, the amplitudes are really small. So discovering new Cepheids is not going to be one of the things that James Webb will do well. The, the, Hubble has been the perfect Cepheid discovering machine because it's sensitive in the optical where the, the variations are largest. So it will help us in terms of, of measuring more accurate luminosities of the galaxies where we already have discovered Cepheids, but not as uh, as helpful as it will be for the tip of the red giant branch in, in terms of discovering new objects at greater distances. But mathematically, if you can show that, um, that the tip of the red giant branch is less noisy, uh, is there any reason to go on the Cepheid route anymore? I mean. Uh, isn't your methodology sort of surpassing the original idea? I, I think ultimately the tip of the red giant branch is going to be uh, what will become the, the best standard. Uh, I think um, having different uh, method, well, so if we can sh uh, show directly that there is a problem with either crowding or metallicity, in principle, we can correct for that. I mean, we, we will have better data and we will be able to see how we do. Um, the other advantage, of course, of the tip of the red giant branch is you need only a single observation to get the measurement of the luminosity of the star. With the Cepheids, we need at least a dozen observations to measure the periods and to determine the period luminosity relation. So it's much more cost effective in terms of telescope time, particularly uh, that's important for James Webb because it takes a long time to, to slew, to move this telescope to a target. Um, and uh, so, so that that would be a very 
a big challenge for JW to measure cepheids with any kind of efficiency. It will be much more efficient with the tip of the red giant branch. But, but I agree. I, I think you know, it, tip of the red giant branch hasn't been studied for as long as cepheids. But as we continue to improve the calibration, it's going to be very hard to beat it in terms of uh, ultimate accuracy because of the simplicity uh, of the method. Yeah, so I was just thinking, Wendy, you know, um, uh, is this automatable? So can we put in some AI sort of heuristics in there as, as uh, James would look for stuff? If it finds a uh, tip of the red giant uh, branch star, it just has to take one measurement, right? So it, it could almost sort of uh, collect this data in an automated way, couldn't it? So uh, it... I, I'd like to understand better how it would have. So you, know, <laughs> you you have to. So we we have of course programs now that go into our uh, galaxy data set and and measure the luminosities and then the colors, the temperatures of the stars, and then um, it's, so it, it, it's not as if James Webb James Webb is going to be surveying the whole sky, right? It, these are pointed observations. And so we need to tell the telescope where to point. Here's a galaxy, right? We don't have tip of the red giant branch stars floating around. And, um, so, so I don't, I, I, you know, I'd be interested to hear if people have ideas about where AI could be helpful in this specific context. It would be really interesting to to hear. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. I was just thinking, I don't know anything about this. I'm just thinking since uh, James Webb is a multi-purpose project, it's going to take a lot of measurements. But if there is some sort of a algorithm in there that says, you know, as you take measurements, if you find one of these things, just take a photograph, you know, sort of thing. Uh, it, yeah, so we, one of the the areas where we put a lot of attention is, is to ensure that we're making these measurements in the halos of galaxies, the outer regions. So we don't want to be anywhere near the disk where we have all these potential systematic uh, effects like the dust and, and crowding and so on. So um, we have, in some cases, tens of thousands of these stars in the halo. Um, we know where to look. We, we essentially set our, our algorithms measuring these luminosities automatically, right? That it's, um, and, um, and then we, we look for this very precise edge to the, the luminosity function of, of the halo stars. So, um, it, it, yeah, as I said, if, if anybody had ideas about where this could be useful, um, I, I'm not an expert in AI, and I, I don't immediately see um, where, where it would come in, but I, I'd sure be interested to hear. It sounds like you will ultimately get a large data set if James Webb is functional and, and doing it. Don't say if, please. <laughs> when, yes. When, when James Webb, uh, I have to be optimistic here, when, when James Webb is functional and taking all this measurement. So there will be a large data set of tip of the red giant stars. And that should settle the score, I would think, right? I mean, it, it, you know, if you have... What would you what would you say the number is? Let's say you have a thousand data points. Um, don't you think at that point you have you know sort of sufficient constraint on where you end up? So uh, I I think this really will allow us to to say is this real or not? Uh, whether we get to one percent accuracy uh, because of uh, effects that again unknown systematics. It's unfortunate 
but not surprising that it it's usually something that is you're not even thinking about that is comes to get you in the end and so when we were trying to solve the factor of two debate with uh, the Hubble constant and Cepheids there were things nobody had corrected for reddening before um, that time or slightly before when we got CCDs on the ground we started to investigate this nobody had paid attention to the metallicity issue uh, and it wasn't possible to make those measurements because when you had a factor of two uncertainty you couldn't it was in the noise and then as, we, as our measurements improved to the 10% level we could measure 15% effects or um, and, and I think as we push down now to one or two percent where we want to be, there are going to be other things that we will be able to measure for the first time that right now we have no hope of doing. So again, it comes down to systematics, but at least we'd be able to, to isolate those kinds of effects once the data get more accurate and, and you know, other effects will, will poke out. Now, the, we won't have a thousand galaxies, right? We might have a thousand stars per galaxy, but we're not going to get to the point of having a thousand galaxies. So, um, but we will get to the point where I think the statistical uncertainties will be very small. And, and again, it's up to us to reduce the systematic effects, but the increase in the sensitivity, the wavelength coverage and the resolution will allow us, to, and the different techniques will allow us to do that. Now, if we have a disagreement, so you know, your earlier question, will we need the Cepheids? We can't predict what will happen, but if the Cepheids, the tip of the red giant branch, ultimately gravitational wave sirens, which I think is a method of the future, there's only one object right now, but if we had three or four measurements that all had quoted precisions and accuracies at the one to 2% level, I think we would be confident that we had a robust overall measurement. And, and that's what we did in the key project. We had five different methods, uh, secondary methods, and then we, we also used the tip of the red giant branch to test the Cepheids and Aurelyri stars. Um, and so we, we could get an overall estimate of the systematic effects. If you have only one measurement, which coming back to why I said we started to do the tip of the red giant branch, is with Cepheids we'll never know alone. But if, if we do get convergence, I think we will have confidence. If we don't, we're, you know, we will continue to learn. <laughs> we just don't know yet where it will land. Yeah, that, that, that's what makes it feel really exciting. So, so in conclusion, I, wa I want you to speculate a little bit. Um, for general public, um, think about cosmology, it seems like we, we have a long way to go. We have dark matter, we have dark energy, that's 95% of the universe. <laughs> We still don't know a lot about it. Um, we have just these measurement errors that we see from different methodologies that gives us some clues as to something might be missing. Um, we haven't really been able to bring gravity into a unified theory. So, so, so where, do, where do you think we will be, let's say 10, 15 years into the future? I, I would hope 10, 15 years into the future we will have um, settled these issues now. There are, there are other hints that there may be cracks in the cosmological model, but there it may be the two sigma level. There are no claims of four to six sigma level uh, effects, but the, there are so many things coming on the horizon. There are the extremely large telescopes like the giant Magellan and the European telescope and, and the TMT and so on. 
um, and and those will allow us again to open up new frontiers and and really uh, make progress. I think on on questions about dark matter and and dark energy and uh, the Gaia European satellite, the Parallax satellite. Those measurements are getting better and better with time, and those will continue to improve. We've been discussing James Webb, and that will get better. I, I think what we really need is a theoretical breakthrough. <laughs> Um, we're not going to solve, we're not going to understand what the dark energy is without some new idea that, that we don't have at the moment. I, I still find myself wondering, could we, and it might not be 15, 10 or 15 years from now, but 50 years or 100 years, if we look back, are we asking the right questions? Um, maybe we're not. Maybe we've taken a slight detour and, and our picture of the universe will be very different. But the way we will, I think, ultimately determine that is by continuing to get better and better data and uh, new ideas will surface that um, that things may lock into place in a way that, that we're, we're at the edge now of our understanding, which always makes it an interesting field. And it's yeah, the the juxtaposition of of theoretical ideas and and new data continually um, confronting each other is is where you make progress. But but we, as you say, we we there is a lot we don't understand right now, and 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 the prospects of of learning even more, which just makes it an incredibly exciting time to be working in the field. And and if you have young listeners, there's so much to do and. You know, figure out what the dark matter, discover a dark matter particle, uh, uh, tell us what the dark energy is fundamentally from a theoretical physics point of view. Uh, Nobel Prize is waiting for some young person somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the scary thing for me is as a thought experiment, um, where would humanity be if Newton, Maxwell, Einstein, Hubble, just to, just to mention a few, didn't show up at the right time points? we would be in a different trajectory altogether, right? Um, and so, so we don't know, <laughs> we don't know which trajectory we are moving on in the absence of, uh, as you say, that theoretical genius, not showing up or showing up, we don't know. Yeah, and there are different types of problems too and different types of people, right? I think you're right, there are certain times, uh, Einstein, if he hadn't shown up when, when he did, there was nothing in the air at that time that, that suggested general relativity and that was he, he showed up at a uh, a time where it really has a, had an impact on our understanding of the cosmos um, other types of results things were in the air and were eventually be discovered but I, I think you know there are certain geniuses who have been at the right place at the right time that have really uh, changed the way we we look at the world we live in and 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 that will continue but we might that might not happen for a while. Some things, Einstein didn't have, and his search for a unified theory, uh, he didn't have the building blocks that were needed to, to do that. So um, sometimes the timing is just not right. And, and we don't know the counterfactuals. So if Einstein too showed up in 1980, we would have solved all this problem <laughs> potentially, right? Uh, but that experiment hasn't been run yet. So yeah, so there's a sort of discontinuous knowledge um, that comes to us, right? Um, and then we take that discontinuity and we try to push that uh, forward incrementally. But if that discontinuity doesn't happen, it takes a long time. 
Yeah, and it can't apply. So, you know, some scientific fields dry up for a while. And then, you know, it's either new technology or some brilliant insight of a person who comes literally from left field with a different way of looking at the world. So, and when you're in the midst of it, you don't know where you are at a given time. So, Excellent. Yeah, I know that you have to go. This has been great, Wendy. Thanks so much for spending time with me and coming back on the show. Enjoy our discussions. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.